Many times we need to keep our health in check, but don't know what questions to ask or where to begin. We walk in blindly to our health care provider and walk out none the wiser and maybe even more confused than before. Can you take charge of your health and arm yourself with the questions and preparedness you need? The answer is yes. Welcome to Occupy Health with Dr. Susan Downs. This program will answer your questions and give you the best practices for facing your medical partner in good health. Now, here's Dr. Susan Downs. Hi. Welcome to Occupy Health with Dr. Susan. There's many diseases going on, and the rate of chronic diseases is increasing. It is to the point that half of our children have a chronic disease where the percentage is much less. One-sixth of our children have developmental delays or you know, various problems, increase in attention deficit, autism through the roof, and some research studies say that age 27 is when we meet our maximum health peak, and from then on, it's down. I thought that usually started in the 50s, 60s, hopefully 80s, 90s, but what's going on? Well, there's so many chronic diseases. So somebody whom I think is brilliant is here with us today, Dr. Thomas Levy. He is an expert. I mean, we had uh, Raymond Francis on who tells us that disease is the combination of having good nutrition and getting good things to the cells and removing toxins from the cells, which is the basics. But Dr. Levy goes into much more detail on this and what we can do, and I think his formulation is brilliant. So let me tell you about Dr. Levy. He is a board-certified cardiologist and a bar-certified attorney. After practicing adult cardiology for 15 years, he began to research the enormous toxicity associated with various elements, such as dental work, uh, the ability to properly administer vitamin C to neutralize this toxicity, and he studied calcium, magnesium, and his many interests. He has now written at least 11 books, largely addressing important roles of dental toxicity, nutrition, disease, and health, along with practical treatment prevention protocols. He had recently been inducted into the Orthomolecular Medicine Hall of Fame. He is now lecturing on the findings of his latest books. Research highlighted in his books and tell us a lot about the evolution of most chronic diseases, um, how they can be diagnosed, and what we can do to address them. Hopefully, we'll also get this will all apply to the COVID-19 virus and many other viruses and things coming down the path that will challenge our health. So welcome, Dr. Levy. It's an honor to have you here. Well, thank you, Susan. It's always an honor to be here. Love it. Anyway, um, tell us why there's such a high rate of chronic diseases, why so many people are getting sick, whereas 40 years ago it didn't seem to be that way. Well, it's increased toxin exposure along with cumulative toxicity. 50 years ago, the average person probably wasn't exposed to 5% of the toxins that someone's exposed to today, no matter how clean their lifestyle is. Obviously, some people, by the way they eat and where they work and uh, the things they use, the crops they have, they can have even more toxicity, but even if you live the perfect lifestyle and eat the perfect organic diet and live on the countryside, you're still going to have a large amount of unavoidable toxicity in the air, food, and water. This is significant because 
All health depends on your redox balance, your reduction oxidation balance in your body. All toxins, 100% of them, exert their toxicity or their toxic effect by ultimately causing increased oxidative stress. In other words, increased oxidation or electron loss from various biomolecules. And as long as those biomolecules are oxidized, they don't function. So the more you have of oxidized biomolecules in different areas of the body and different concentrations, that determines what disease you have. And to the extent that you can get uh, vitamin C and other quality antioxidants inside the body in sufficient amounts, these antioxidants can donate electrons back to the oxidized biomolecules, restore their normal biological function, and sometimes when a disease is not too advanced, but early on, you can get complete resolution of something that would otherwise evolve into a chronic situation. Unfortunately, in addition to the other sources of toxins that we are all aware of, there's a large amount of internally generated toxins that probably do the most damage of all, which we've talked about a great deal in the past, Susan, dental toxicity, dental infections, tonsils, gums, all of these things place enormous oxidative stress on the body and set the body up for just about any disease imaginable. We've gone through many times in this program that well, many experts believe the underlying causes of diseases uh, is inflammation and oxidative stress. Inflammation will create oxidative stress and vice versa. And many uh, metabolic abnormalities will lead to inflammation, oxidative stress, such as high insulin levels, etc. So for the listener, what do you mean by an oxidized molecule? What is oxidative stress? Oxidation is when a molecule, in this case a biomolecule, part of your normal molecules inside your cells and outside your cells, that's when that molecule loses an electron. Then it's considered to be in an oxidized state. And in the oxidized state, it no longer has normal function. It either has diminished function or more commonly no function at all. So when you oxidize an enzyme, that enzyme loses its function. A reduction is when you return an electron back to an oxidized or electron depleted molecule. And really at the cellular and molecular level, that's all there is to any disease at all is how much and how many and where they located of oxidized biomolecules determines all disease manifestations and how effectively you can get antioxidants to gain access to the oxidized biomolecules completely dictates the success of a therapy, along, of course, with stopping the introduction of new toxins on a daily basis. So you're saying any and all diseases have the underlying cause, or maybe it's associated with the cause, of this oxidation. And you're saying where the disease or which disease shows up depends where this oxidative state occurs. Precisely, precisely. Um, I think sometimes, or many in many cases, uh, patients and doctors alike think that when you have a disease like Alzheimer's that there's some sort of 
Alzheimer's disease ill-defined in your cells. No, it's just a distribution, a unique distribution and concentration of oxidized biomolecules. Now, there can be different factors that cause that. So you might have an increased level of this heavy metal or that heavy metal or a bunch of other things inside a cell uh, that's causing the oxidative stress, but it's still the oxidative stress itself that determines what the disease expression is. What, what, how, many are bio, are, are, how many are oxidized, how long they've been oxidized, where are they oxidized, and that's it. And the thing that different toxins cause different disease manifestations because there's, you know, thousands, hundreds of thousands of toxins, maybe more, maybe millions actually, and they have different chemical structures. So they'll go to different areas of the body based on their chemical structure, and it's where they end up concentrating due to their unique chemical uh, structure that determines what it is they oxidize and where they oxidize it. And that's the only difference among toxins. The damage is still the same. It's oxidation of biomolecules. Wow. Well, I did an article on autism, and I believe like autism, like Alzheimer's, is the final common pathway of everything that just goes wrong. And it sounds like that everything can be a lot of everything and different oxidative stress in different areas. And it's interesting, different toxins go to different parts of the body. That's why if we measure them, it might be hard to find. For example, I understand lead goes to the bone. And when women go through menopause and lose bone mass, that lead tends to come out. So th- these toxins can end up anywhere. And you describe a toxin as kind of, uh, what uh, in this format, how do you define a toxin? Is it an oxidized molecule? Well, yes, a toxin is an oxidized biomolecule. It is short on electrons, which means it's oxidized. And it's seeking electrical stability by taking an electron away from something, in this case, oxidizing a regular biomolecule. And the thing about it is once the toxin gets those electrons, it becomes chemically stable and it no longer is going to give up the electrons. That's in contradistinction to something like vitamin C where it'll donate an electron to reduce a biomolecule, but in the process, it'll oxidize itself. So what's the difference between an oxidized vitamin C and a toxin that's oxidized? The difference is the vitamin C will take and give and take and give and take and give and will relay or shuttle electrons through the cell, actually helping to create the biological microcurrents that we know exist, whereas the toxins take electrons and keep take electrons and keep. So they just end up being an electron sink. They don't promote electron flow, and all they do is promote oxidation of other biomolecules. Now, you had a beautiful formulation that describes this in detail that I found absolutely fascinating. Uh, you saw that the what's important is the oxidative state inside the cell with the intercellular oxidative state. And you s- said there's four components that um, kind of manage this. And can you talk a little more about that? Because I found that fascinating. Sure. Well, based on what I've just been talking about, about oxidation and reduction, losing electrons and regaining them, it turns out that the 
most reliable parameter and pathophysiological measurement of how sick or diseased, if you will, a cell is, is the amount of intracellular inside the cell oxidative stress, or like we're just talking about, the numbers of biomolecules that are oxidized rather than being in their normal reduced state. And there's really four basic um, agents that directly impact whether your intracellular oxidative stress is elevated, severely elevated, slightly, or normal. And that is your levels of calcium, your levels of magnesium, your levels of vitamin C, and your levels of glutathione. In uh, an earlier book I wrote called Death by Calcium, I was quite stunned but was able to see over and over and over again in the literature that literally 100% of all disease processes have increased intracellular oxidative stress, which is always accompanied by and caused by, both cause uh, increased levels of calcium. Calcium is a very important thing to have in the right amounts, but once you get above a certain level, calcium is highly toxic uh, and directly promotes this oxidative stress. And the more you take of it, the more you increase your chance of death from all causes. On the other hand, magnesium is the physiological antidote for calcium. The more magnesium to bring into the cell, the more calcium you push out of the cell. So you'll never have high levels of both calcium and magnesium in the cell, only one or the other. So that's one of the main ways, which is why magnesium is such a phenomenal supplement, because most people are depleted in it. Most people have some degree of increased intracellular calcium, and their best and most reliable way to counteract that and reverse that is by taking in quality magnesium products on a regular basis, increasing their intracellular calcium, uh, intracellular magnesium, and lowering the calcium. And once the magnesium starts coming in and the oxidative stress starts coming down, then other measures that can bring vitamin C into the cell further bring that oxidative stress down to the point that as it approaches normal, then in a sequence, the glutathione can start building up. You don't get the glutathione first because the glutathione needs to be synthesized inside the cell and the enzymes have to be active that synthesize glutathione. If you start where there's a lot of calcium and a lot of intracellular oxidative stress, then most of those glutathione synthesizing enzymes are oxidized, not functioning, and you'll never build up the glutathione until you eliminate the bulk of the oxidative stress first. What was interesting is I think you quoted uh, some studies that the level of intracellular calcium uh, is associated with an, when that's high, it's associated with an increased all death rate. And also, you also referred at another time that low, that high levels of magnesium uh, is associated with a lower all-cause death rate. Yeah, no, they, they directly correlate. And the reason that is is because these changes are present in every cell in the body, okay? You can have certain specific disease processes, obviously, where some cells are worse off than others, but when you're talking about abnormalities of calcium metabolism, 
that's going to be reflected by abnormalities in every cell in the body to one degree or another. And when you're able to take in enough magnesium to push the calcium out of those cells, that's a positive impact on every cell in the body. So in that regard, that's why these things are not only beneficial, but they're reflected in, in the case of taking magnesium or eliminating calcium, you decrease your chance of death from any disease. Because as I said, all these diseases have variations, but they all have this increased oxidative stress. And if you can push it down inside the cells, you're less likely to die of whatever the underlying disease process is. Yes. And also interesting is you mentioned that vitamin C getting into the cell helps, helps contributes to normalizing the calcium and magnesium ratios, lowering the calcium and increasing the magnesium. But I guess it's hard to get the vitamin C in the cell. Yeah, really, the, you, you work on it by primarily by magnesium because that pushes the calcium out. And it also blocks the calcium channels that take calcium up. It's very difficult for any of these positive effects in decreasing intracellular oxidative stress to take place until you primarily start lowering the elevated intracellular calcium levels. Because uh, once that starts, then they have a number of things. They have uh, insulin, hydrocortisone. These are both agents that pull vitamin C into the cell. Okay, matter of fact, that's one of the more interesting things I ran across is that hydrocortisone, which uh, is an anti-inflammatory, probably the most prominent mm, prescription pharmacological uh, anti-inflammatory there is, even though it is a natural substance. And it would appear, at least in my opinion, vitamin C is probably even more potent and anti-inflammatory or equal to as hydrocortisone. And as it turns out, well, we've done some studies and found that hydrocortisone pushes vitamin C into the cell. And I just said that the primary characteristic of disease is increased intracellular oxidative stress. So hydrocortisone pushes vitamin C inside the cell. And it's my opinion that the primary way in which hydrocortisone quells inflammation is because of its ability, fairly unique ability, to accelerate and push vitamin C into the intracellular space. Wow. So let me just uh, get to one basic here. If we have no disease, there's no intracellular oxidative stress, and if we've got no oxidative stress inside our cells, we've got no increase in diseases, or, you know, is, is that correct? Uh, Yes, except I would not say no oxidative stress. There's always physiological degrees of oxidative stress, but but increased above physiological normals of oxidative stress, yes. Yes, because our mitochondria create excess electrons and oxidative stress. That's just uh, one of the results of some of the good things that they do. But, you know, one of the uh, another very interesting thing is the role of hormones here, because, for example, I mean, calcium channel blockers, you know, as you, you were inferring, uh, helps decrease the intracellular intracellular level of, of calcium, which is a good thing. Now, you mentioned that estrogen, testosterone, as well as hydrocortisone are natural calcium channel blockers. They also 
uh, are anti-inflammatory. They also help stabilize the metabolic syndrome where there's unstable uh, blood sugar levels, which can lead to insulin resistance, which leads to lots of inflammation and oxidative stress. So that's kind of interesting. So you're saying you absolutely have to have your hormones normalized for these effects to be optimal. No question. I mean, and it always, well, irritated me, I suppose, that there were the attitude of some physicians that, oh, you have a really old person there and they have a lot of medical problems and you just give them a little bit of, li- little bit of this or a little bit of that and, and don't really want to do a lot. Well, and they wouldn't even dream of checking and adjusting hormones because they're so old. Well, to me, that reasoning is completely unscientific and unfounded on any clinical basis because anybody, as long as they're still alive, their body appreciates a normalization of hormonal function. Now, obviously in an older person, an 85-year-old man that's very low in testosterone, you don't give them a huge dose of testosterone. You start with a very small amount and gradually build them up into the low normal range. You don't shoot for high normal. You don't want to put, as I say, rocket fuel in a Model T. You got to be <laughs> ginger. But the whole point is, is all hormones basically, in my opinion, have two functions. One is, depending on the hormone, it's accelerating one or more specific metabolic pathways so, so that something's happening more quickly. And the second thing is, every hormone I've looked at and looked at the research on, they all decrease oxidative stress in the body. So those are really the two primary functions of hormones. And because of the oxidative stress factor, uh, they're extremely critical in how well everything else works. Okay, Um, for example, with thyroid hormone. When your thyroid levels are just slightly low, what's known as a a subacute, if you will, hypothyroidism, usually clinically silent, usually not reflected on standard thyroid testing, but strongly reflected when you compare T3 and reverse T3 levels. When this is only slightly out of whack, slightly low, the ability of infections in one part of your body, like say with the teeth, an infected tooth, to spread to other parts of your body, like to your coronary arteries to develop atherosclerosis and develop heart attacks is strongly, strongly, strongly enhanced. And on the other hand, when you can bring the thyroid function into the completely euthyroid, solidly normal range, it's incredible how well I like to say that focal infections stay focal. Obviously, if you have an infection anywhere in your body, the first thing you want to do is, if possible, eradicate the infection. But that's not always so easily done. A lot of times, if it's an infected tooth or root canal, somebody doesn't want to take it out. A lot of times, there might be an infection. You don't even know it's there unless you do certain specific testing. But all of that said, if you can perfectly regulate the thyroid function, the evidence is those infections stay, uh, stay, pl- stay put. And the same thing goes for cancer staying put versus becoming metastatic. Uh, one of the problems, I think, with cancer therapy today is they consider the entire goal 
to eradicate the cancer. Well, that may sound fine at first blush, but it's the way they do it that counts, okay? If you're eradicating the cancer and really bringing down and and, uh, eroding away your immune strength at the same time, you're not going to do a lot of favors for the longevity of that person. On the other hand, just like with infections, just like, say, with something like TB, which can be in very quiescent phases, if all of these hormonal functions are precisely controlled, focal infections stay focal, cancers don't metastasize, and many times the cancers, they won't be eradicated necessarily, but they won't grow either. So you basically get to live and coexist peacefully with your cancer or live or coexist peacefully with your focal infections when these critical hormones are perfectly adjusted. Wow. I'd like to make a comment on testosterone, gents, because if you have too high a testosterone, it goes, it converts to estrogen via the aromatase pathway. So giving you a lot of testosterone, if not carefully balanced, might give you uh, man boobs, uh, you know, converting to estrogen. So you have to be careful. Just don't go out and take a lot of testosterone. Work with your clinician, your physician. Now, what's really interesting about the thyroid is it's kind of like almost an orchestra conductor because if you've got low thyroid, uh, apparently it that you know, is associated or perhaps leads to increase in intracellular calcium, increased oxidative stress, increased system-wide infections and spread. And if you add thyroid to a person who's low thyroid, it just actually increases the magnesium and decreases the calcium in the cell. Now, you also commented, you referred to that, you know, we might be hypothyroid subclinical, as you indicated, meaning it won't show up on any of the doctor's tests. What do we do about that? Well, the thing is, is... uh The internists and GPs and endocrinologists have these standard thyroid function tests, T3, T4, T7. And although this sounds appropriate at first, what they're really doing is just measuring thyroid activity in the thyroid gland. As it turns out, how hypothyroid or low thyroid you are depends on the thyroid status inside every cell of your body, not just in the thyroid gland. The active form of thyroid hormone is T3, triodothyronine, converted from T4, which is the largely inactive precursor. Well, your thyroid gland produces T4, but only 15% of it, more or less, is converted in the thyroid to T3 and then released to the rest of the body. Otherwise, the thyroid is releasing T4 and it's up to the different cells in your body to convert the T4 into the active T3. And that's where the defect takes place because inside the cells of your body, you have special enzymes called deiodinases. T4 has four iodines on it. T3 has three iodines on it. And another form of T3 called reverse T3 also has three iodines on it but a different three, and they're basically mirror images. Well, mirror images don't always have the same function. And in the case of reverse T3, when there's a large amount of oxidative stress that's keeping 
certain of the diiodinases inactive and oxidized, then you start forming more reverse T3 rather than regular T3. And the more that reverse T3, that blank key that is taking up thyroid receptors but without causing the expected thyroid function, the reverse T3 goes up, the regular T3 goes down, and you have what's known as intracellular hypothyroidism, which is really the main concern in your body. is not what's going on in the thyroid gland, but whether or not it's working inside your cells. So when you can identify this, and the blood tests are easy, and you measure T3, you measure your reverse T3, you do the ratio, and something on the order of 20 to 1, T3 to reverse T3 is very good. Even 21, maybe 22. But when it starts get, getting down to 18, 19, and certainly by the time you get to 17 or 16, you're looking at a significant decrease in thyroid function in the cells of the body, which is likely present even though the standard thyroid function, the T3, the T4, the T7, and the TSH are all in what are considered to be the normal limits. So the more your thyroid function decreases, especially when it's due to increased oxidative stress, the more it's going to be reflected in the reverse T3. And monitoring this ratio, depending on looking for the sources of oxidative stress, like infected teeth, while at the same time giving uh, thyroid extract or T3, a form of T3, not good to give T4. And this is something that confuses a lot of people. What did I just say the defect was? The defect was a conversion of T4 to T3. So you can give a ton of T4, and if the problem is a conversion problem, it's not going to have that much of an impact on the clinical manifestations or normalcy of your therapy. So that's why, at least until these defects get uh, corrected, if they are able to be corrected in the long term, you do it with thyroid extract or with a different form of T3. Interesting. So also uh, assisting with that conversion of T4 to T3, selenium helps and various things like iron and propanol can impede it. But you're saying that uh, whatever the doctor's typical test is not really telling us what's going on inside the cell. But the T3 and T3 reverse ratio, hopefully around 20, does tell us what's going on inside the cell. That's correct. Um, I would say this about the standard thyroid function test, T3, T4, T7, and TSH, that's the standard panel, that's really only good for diagnosing any degree of hyperthyroidism and for massive, not subtle, degrees of hypothyroidism. But for the minimal hypothyroidism, which I believe is a real epidemic around the world because it results largely from what we talked about at the beginning of this program, the overwhelming nonstop bombardment of our bodies with excess toxins. Uh, That's what gets results from this toxicity is a consistent, mild, but very clinically significant impairment of thyroid function. And just think where the thyroid gland sits. It's sitting right underneath your mouth. And sharing drainage pathways, lymphatic, venous, and so all the toxins 
that we know that come from the mouth, and there are many, infected teeth, infected gums, infected consoles, infected sinuses, uh, all of these things, hey, it's, it's, like, uh, it's like the thyroid is a sieve for them and uh, filters through a lot of this. So its physical location in the body, I believe, uh, accounts for a large amount of this uh, subtle but very clinically significant hypothyroidism we see in the United States now and around the world. Very interesting. And just to reiterate, very low thyroid, even though our doctors don't pick it up in their lab test, so interconnected with intercellular uh, calcium, oxidative stress, so interconnected with wide, uh, the system-wide infections and helping spread them, and just so connected with our health. So the T3, reverse T3 ratio shows us that at least the thyroid is doing well in the cell. Does that imply the magnesium, calcium, and vitamin C and glutathione are doing well inside the cell, or are there separate measures for that? Well, that's a very good question. I believe uh, that when you're able to achieve and maintain this more or less perfect T3, reverse T3 level, uh, that's a major factor in at least allowing you to normalize those other factors. In other words, it would be very difficult in the face of large amounts of intracellular calcium to ever achieve enough decrease in the oxidative stress to allow the deiodinases to be reduced and put into their normal form and then produce normal amounts of T3 relative to reverse T3. So it is all intimately interwoven, but in direct answer to your question, I would have to say I believe that a perfect ratio would be certainly uh, reflective of uh, a much more normal intracellular oxidative stress level than you would see otherwise, for sure. Now, it's also be interesting to measure the intracellular magnesium, that means inside the cell, magnesium and vitamin C, as 99% of the magnesium is in the cell, and 95% of that magnesium that's in the cell is in the mitochondria. So how... I mean, so a doctor takes a magnesium test. Oh, he'll get the 1% that's left in the blood, which might give him some clues. But how do we measure the magnesium that's inside the cell? Well, first, with regard to the blood test, let me just say the only real value of a magnesium blood test is if it comes back low. If the blood level is low, then you're really low in magnesium throughout your body. On the other hand, if it's in what's considered to be the normal or reference range, there's a possibility you could have normal stores in your body, but much more likely you just have a lesser degree of deficiency because of exactly what you said. What's going on in the blood is only 1% of what's going on throughout the body. Uh, and much of what happens with the mitochondria supplying the intracellular space, supplying the extracellular space, supplying the blood, this, these stores of magnesium are always working to try to keep the blood level normal. But obviously, the more magnesium you ultimately take out of your mitochondrion cell increases your intracellular magnesium deficiency, even though you're sustaining a more quote-unquote normal level in the blood. So how you measure this, the best way that I know of now 
is they have something called, it, the website is Exatest, E-X-A-T-E-S-T, exatest.com. It's a sublingual sample that takes some cells from underneath your tongue around the frenulum and using a sophisticated uh, machine that, uh, well, I'm not sophisticated enough to tell you how it works, but it's able to measure intracellular levels of that specimen for calcium and magnesium uh, and a couple other electrolytes. I'm not sure what the other ones are. So that is able to give you a direct reflection of the magnesium status inside your cells, which is the true story. And they've also done studies that have shown that this sublingual cell test has a very clear positive correlation with more traditional biopsy studies like biopsies of the muscle where they look for intracellular magnesium. This test correlates well. So at this stage of technology, it looks like uh, that's probably your best way to know that you're close to or at a normal magnesium status in your body. Now, as a practical point, it's still good for everybody to supplement magnesium no matter how normal that is because we waste so much magnesium every day. The toxins that I talk about uh, cause a great deal of consumption of the magnesium in trying to maintain the oxidative stress caused by those toxins. So you still need substantial amounts of magnesium in your diet and in your supplements. Supplements because... Uh, they say, oh, it's not natural to take it by supplements. Well, it's not natural to be subjected to uh, several thousand different toxins every day either. There's nothing natural about that. So we're compensating <laughs> with things that should not be happening, but you're not going to be able to compensate for it just with a diet. And magnesium, for example, is so important. You have said in the past that uh, it's heavily, uh, you know, it's correlated with coronary artery disease hypertension, I mean, magnesium is as a, one of the best calcium channel blockers can help with high blood pressure. You postulate that migraines can be greatly helped by magnesium. Eclampsia and cerebral vasoconstriction can be associated with low um, magnesium. You also mentioned at one time that, you know, a seizure that magnesium can help. Um, that in Alzheimer's, low magnesium levels makes the uh, uh, symptoms worse that uh, low magnesium can increase the metabolic syndrome, which can lead to coronary artery disease, um, and that giving ma- magnesium could help. Also, you mentioned that magnesium levels are inversely related to you know, levels of um, congestive heart failure. You mentioned that magnesium neutralizes toxins, and uh, that's pretty wondrous molecule. It's probably involved with you know, hundreds of um, enzyme, you know, reactions within our body. So tell us more about the wonders of magnesium. Well, a number of articles and authors assert that magnesium is intimately involved in 80% of all metabolic uh, reactions in the body. So it almost makes you wonder, well, wow, what is it excluded from? It, co- it covers so many things. The first thing I'd say about magnesium is there's a large number, a substantial number of diseases that are primarily caused by magnesium deficiency. But having said that, it's equally important to know that 100% of diseases are worsened by magnesium deficiency and you'll never get 
optimal control of any clinical condition if you haven't identified and are not optimally managing whatever level of magnesium deficiency your patient might have. Probably the the conditions that magnesium are most prominently impactful for are the conditions that involve vascular muscle tone. That's why it's an effective antihypertensive. It relaxes the blood vessels. That's why it's effective against migraine. Uh, Actually, there are so many agents that are used to treat migraine, yet consistently in the literature, when they would encounter patients that had what's called status migranosis or just migraine headaches that just wouldn't relent, about the only thing that brought them around was intravenous magnesium. I think migraine is primarily a magnesium deficiency disorder. For example, it's one of the things that's not just worsened by magnesium deficiency, but primarily caused by it. The other thing that hasn't gotten much talk about, or really any talk about that I know of, is the role of magnesium in toxins. Now, I said for a long time that the only thing you need for any poisoning at all uh, in the poison control center, wherever you might go if you're poisoned by anything, is to get intravenous vitamin C and start neutralizing that toxin right away. And I would maintain that except I have a modification to make, which is there's a lot of people that get poisoned by something and they die long before the poison starts destroying the cells by oxidation. And that's because they cause a prolongation of the QT interval on the EKG, which leads to fatal arrhythmias, ventricular tachycardia, ventricular fibrillation. This prolonged QT interval is invariably associated with an acute magnesium deficiency. So I would maintain now that the best way to approach any acutely poisoned person is to simultaneously give them a fusion of magnesium and vitamin C, the magnesium there to bring the QT interval back down so that the patient doesn't have the risk of a sudden arrhythmia death while the vitamin C gets infused to start repairing the oxidative damage of the toxin. So it's a pretty impressive antitoxin agent, yes. And vitamin C also is quite impressive. Tell us about the wonders of vitamin C. For example, the Chinese have been uh, publishing that IV vitamin C has helped with the Corona-19 virus, and New York City's been using it as well. So tell us about all the wonders of vitamin C. Well, vitamin C, uh, for anybody that wants to review the literature, even though there's a lot of people out there that like to make assertions that clearly indicate they haven't cracked one article in the literature, they just have their opinion going. Vitamin C is one of the most extensively researched substances in history. If you actually want to look at PubMed and see all the articles that have been generated, and the things that it's consistently done is resolve, neutralize, and inactivate viruses in the test tube, as well as clinical infections. And there's never been discovered a virus that vitamin C won't directly incapacitate and break down, kill, if you will, although a virus is not technically alive in the test tube. Similarly, all the common viral childhood illnesses, uh, measles, mumps, uh, chicken pox, uh, you name it, uh, different uh, 
uh, viral syndromes, viral pneumonia, vitamin C adequately dosed always reliably resolves these syndromes. Uh, the only times you hear things reported that don't work is because somebody insisted on using one gram rather than 50 grams. I mean, it takes millions of units of penicillin to cure pneumococcal pneumonia, so you're not going to cure pneumococcal pneumonia with 100 units. And these are really the only failures, quote unquote, that ever get reported about vitamin C with viruses. Now, we've already seen that vitamin C, it is published cures Zika fever. That was a scourge for a while. Uh, impaired the uh, Summer Olympics in, uh, in, uh, in Brazil in 2016. Uh, chikungunya virus, uh, a real scourge in Puerto Rico and South America. We've had the documentation that vitamin C intravenously resolves that. And uh, vitamin C has played a role in resolving Ebola as well, although the one particular study in mind uh, had ozone doing the primary amount of the work. But bottom line is ozone, vitamin C, individually, together, will resolve every virus if it's adequately administered and adequately uh, and given in a proper protocol. Now, the Chinese, interestingly enough, because I actually went to China a couple years ago uh, with my colleague Richard Chang, who is a uh, well, he's an American citizen. He's no longer a Chinese national, and he practices in the United States. But uh, we went over to China to talk about vitamin C, and as it turned out, I was very surprised to see that they already had a large amount of information on vitamin C and different uh, conditions in the intensive care unit, burns, sepsis, uh, and you name it. And I really felt I was preaching to the choir. <laughs> I was just sort of validating for them what they already knew. And as it turns out, after we've watched this pandemic unfold, uh, and by the input of Dr. Chang, who has been in China the whole time, he sort of ended up getting trapped there, if you will, uh, by visiting his family just about the time this whole thing started. But since then, he's played a major role in getting the vitamin C protocols started in China. But as it turns out, uh, and I'm afraid the United States would never acknowledge this, even if they knew it to be true. But China bailed themselves out of a great deal of this pandemic and its severity with vitamin C. Uh, early on, one of the Chinese manufacturing plants for vitamin C delivered 50 tons. That's... Uh, a hundred, well, <laughs> do, do the math. Two, uh, a ton is a thousand pounds. Fifty tons of vitamin C. Two thousand pounds. Two two thousand pounds. Excuse me. Uh, to a vitamin C to Wuhan. Now, what do you think would happen if they delivered fifty tons of vitamin C to the United States? It would sit in the warehouse unused. Okay, so this is, in my opinion, one of the major things that pulled China out of their situation as relatively quickly as it did. And if their numbers that are reported are even close to being true, I mean, nobody ever seems to trust what China says, but if their numbers are even close to being reported with their massive population and starting the whole epidemic, they appear to have caused and sustained far less infections than we have in the United States. 
Now, they're already doing some studies as well. They're not just treating patients with it, but they're doing studies. And the studies as well are showing very positive results. They, one study is giving 24,000 milligrams of vitamin C a day in two divided doses of uh, 12,000 given over a four or five hour period each time. So giving a long-term infusion of the 24,000 milligrams for a two-week period is having a profoundly positive effect as well. So there's no question. I mean, if somebody just wants to be argumentative for the sake of being argumentative or, or wants to feel insecure because they never heard about vitamin C before and just refuse to believe it could be good, well, that's their prerogative. But they're wrong. Vitamin C is enormously potent against all viruses and is turning out to be enormously potent against coronavirus as well. I'd like to chime in on ozone. Robert Rowan, who's been on this program, went to Sierra Leone during the Ebola outbreak, and he was treating people successfully with ozone. Uh, For example, the health minister turned down his treatment, but the health minister's wife, um, who was under lock I mean who was under armed guard and had barbed wire around her fence um, she wanted treatment and she actually had to climb over the fence get past the armed guards to get to Dr. Rowan and she was successfully treated because she did have the Ebola virus now Dr. Rowan's saying that his method also works in coronavirus which you know is good to know since he lives nearby but anyway um, also, what would you recommend for the COVID-19 uh, virus? I believe that it's important to build up our immunity, vitamin C, taking zinc, just keeping our immunity up, avoiding toxins is the best shot we have. What do you recommend? Well, I agree. Uh, we should be taking vitamin C regularly uh, for prevention, maybe 2,000 milligrams three times a day uh, of regular C, sodium ascorbate liposome encapsulated if you have it. Another important thing to take is magnesium, but in the form of magnesium chloride. Magnesium chloride, many years ago, was found to, by itself, cure polio just as easily as vitamin C had with Dr. Klinner. So making a simple, inexpensive magnesium chloride solution, 20 grams and a quart of water, intake in depending on whether you're an infant or an adult anywhere from 15 to 100 cc's a day very very potent uh, preventive remedy and if you do contract the virus you just increase that dose a couple times vitamin d very important zinc very important and two other things that are extremely important is despite of all the incredible garbage we've been hearing chloroquine is incredibly effective. It pulls zinc into the cell and zinc kills the virus promptly. Finally, something that's being ignored completely, well not completely, but largely ignored, is nebulization, inhaling a fine mist of hydrogen peroxide. It knocks out the virus where it replicates in your oropharynx and your nasopharynx and also starts nuking the virus as it goes down into the lungs. Uh, This not only will abort coronavirus, but just about any other virus leading to pneumonia or just the common cold. If you get an early symptom and you nebulize with hydrogen peroxide, I guarantee you almost every time you're going to be over it in 12 hours or less. So all of those measures are extremely important. One other thing I'd like to add, because of the, you know it's so important to get vitamin C into the cell, the lipospheric form of vitamin C, which Dr. Levy I highly advocates and makes available to the public is a very good way to get it into the cell. 
Yeah, there's no doubt about that. Uh, I tell you what, though, as soon as this uh, pro uh, pandemic started, many of these vitamins were in immediately in short supply and, and live on laboratories, uh, back orders so rapidly they had to stop taking orders and just take care of their long-term uh, clients. And uh, they're gradually working their way out of that now. But there's enough of the public that knows how good vitamin C and vitamins and minerals are that even though <laughs> most doctors think they're useless, there's a lot of people out there that put a big run on these uh, natural agents as soon as they saw this uh, epidemic evolving into a pandemic. Well, thank God that the American public has a lot of common sense. We have about two and a half minutes left. So uh, what closing remarks or what did we not touch on that you feel is important for the audience to hear? Well, you know, the important thing, and we sort of discussed it already, I think to know about COVID is nobody needs to die. If you nebulize, if you take chloroquine, if you develop symptoms, uh, and if you take intravenous vitamin C, you're not going to die from COVID unless you're already five minutes away from death and on a ventilator. Okay, it's it's just another virus. It's very uh, contagious. It's very nasty in how quickly it causes acute respiratory adult respiratory distress syndrome and can kill you very rapidly. But it's just another virus, and it appears to be no more immune to the effects of vitamin C, the effects of ozone, uh, the effects of the chloroquine, which pushes zinc into the cell, uh, and even of uh, the hydrogen peroxide. I mean, hydrogen peroxide nukes everything. Believe it or not, they're advertising now hydrogen peroxide aerosol to sterilize, to sterilize ventilators that have been contaminated with COVID. So why not (laughs) sterilize yourself first rather than wait to give it to a ventilator? But be careful. Do not take hydrogen peroxide by mouth because it can have some very serious adverse effects. Nebulizing, great, but drinking it might be something else. No, we're not talking about drinking it, of course not. I know. I just want to make sure people understand. Anyway, there's about one and a half minutes left. Do you want to tell people how to get a hold of you? Should they have further questions? Well, my website is peakenergy.com, P-E-A-K-E-N-E-R-G-Y. And my uh, email, uh, I can't do consultations on people, but I can usually supply information, is uh, my initials and last name, T-E-L-E-V-Y-M-D T-E-L-E-V-Y-M-D, at yahoo.com. And uh, I, I try to help as much as I can. I don't think it's fair for me to get people all upset about something and then make myself unavailable <laughs> for questions. So uh, I do try to help everyone that writes, but some people just, they want too much information and I have to be kind and say, look, there's a limit. I can't, I can't be your doctor. I can just lead you to information. Well, you are helping so many people and thank you for sharing this. And I want to reaffirm that getting information is crucial. I mean, we're not treating, we're giving you information, but you can bring this to your provider, your physician, your naturopath, and, you know, share this information with him, share or her, share this information with your friends so you can help them be well, help the community be well, and help yourselves be well. So above all, be well. for listening. Occupy Health with Dr. Susan Downs can be heard live every Friday at 2 p.m. Eastern Time and 11 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. 
Here's to better health for you this week.